Hi, and welcome to episode one of the Fine Wine Confidential Podcast. This is Fred Reno, your host. The Fine Wine Confidential Podcast will focus 100% on the modern day Virginia wine industry and its dynamic growth in producing quality wine during the past 40 years here in the Old Dominion. In this episode, I take the opportunity to introduce myself, why I believe you should tune in, what you will learn, and why I was motivated to create this podcast in the first place. I'm sure you're saying to yourself, okay, here comes the sales pitch, better make it good. Well, rather than doing the lead introduction myself, I will defer to an accomplished wine industry veteran who knows me well. You can then be the judge of whether you want to take your time to listen, learn what I have to say, and add me to your list of important sources for information about wine. Hi, this is Peter Neptune. I'm a master sommelier and I'm the president and CEO of Neptune School of Wine here in Southern California. And you're probably asking yourself at this point, who the heck is Fred Reno? And why should I listen to his podcast or view his new website, finewineconfidential.com? The reason I'm endorsing Fred is that I know Fred very well. I worked with him and alongside him at the Henry Wine Group for 10 years as his vice president of wine education. Fred is a successful 40-year wine business executive with experience in all facets of the wine industry, which include retail, winery producer, brand building, and distribution. He has literally seen it all. When he began his career over 40 years ago as a young wine buyer in Washington, D.C., he was intrigued and curious at that time by what was happening in California. So he decided to see for himself and hopped on a plane headed for Northern California wine country. He discovered many upcoming new wine producers who would later become recognized leaders in the growth of California wines available nationally, several of which he was instrumental in building. And as a result of his early trips to California, he started to buy directly from the producer, introducing their wines on the East Coast to his clientele. Eventually, he would move to California, and his career grew even more successful. Well, thank you, Peter, for that wonderful introduction. You've now put the pressure on me to make this podcast stand out. Folks, with past this prologue, In 2017, the same intrigue and intellectual curiosity that has governed my career hit me once again during an annual trip my wife and I made to Virginia. During that trip, I quickly realized there had been an evolution in wine quality happening in the Old Dominion. So when we returned to California, once again, I hopped on a plane, only this time it was to the East Coast, to verify for myself what I intuitively believed was happening. And sure enough, after tasting many quality Virginia wines, and I mean many, it became apparent what had occurred in California 40 years ago and what I had experienced also 30 years ago in Oregon, that Virginia was now the new frontier for wine growing in the U.S. Backed by that belief, I went all in and my wife and I moved permanently in late 2018 to Virginia. I've created this podcast to highlight this dynamic story of the Virginia modern-day wine industry's growth. Virginia is, in my opinion, the most exciting wine-growing region in the country today. 
There are about 300 wineries in Virginia now, and from what I have tasted, at least 10 to 15% of them, perhaps even more, are now producing as good a quality wine as any wine region in the world, and I will put my reputation behind that statement. However, I continue to be surprised by how this development remains largely undiscovered and unknown to many wine drinkers in the wine trade at large in the U.S. My goal is simple. I want to change that. There's a little known fact that during the early settlement at Jamestown, the newly formed House of Burgesses here in Virginia enacted Act 12 in 1619, which required each male settler to plant at least 10 grapevines for future production of wine. Thus, Virginia has a 400-year history of wine growing and is achieving the aspirations of Thomas Jefferson to produce wine equal to Europe's best. This podcast will showcase the history of those past 45 years of wine growing in Virginia through interviews I conduct with many of the Commonwealth's prominent winemakers, winery owners, and viticulturalists who have contributed to this wine quality progress. You will learn in their own words the challenges they faced and the vision behind their successes. I believe you will find the first three episodes to be very insightful. They will tell a story about several of the personalities in the Virginia wine industry whose careers intersected and in each case they went on to make significant contributions of their own to the Virginia industry. In episode one, Gabrielle Rossi, who New York Times called the father of modern day wine growing and for good reason, is my guest. Gabrielle was hired by Gianni Zonin from the very prominent Italian wine family of the same name shortly after they founded Barbersville Vineyards and helped them get their start in 1976. Listen to this excerpt from my interview with Gabrielli when I asked him his opinion on why he thought Thomas Jefferson was not successful in producing wine from his vineyard site at Monticello. By the way, this same vineyard site, Gabrielli was asked to replant to the original varietals that Jefferson planted back in the 1700s, and he did start replanting it in 1984. Why do you think, I mean, I understand phylloxera, okay, but yeah, yeah. why did he fail to be able to successfully grow grape and make wine? I mean... Okay, my feeling is... Uh, yeah, I want your opinion yeah, on this. Yeah, my feeling is wildlife, and i tell you why. Uh, while he's in France, 1789, I think is the year, uh, he writes a letter to Anthony Giannini, who was the person in charge of the orchard and the vineyard and everything, and said, do you think we will be able to make some wine this year? And Anthony Giannini answered, I will be happy to make some wine, to try to make some wine, but the grapes disappear year after year before they are ripe. So you see, and he sort of suggests that maybe the slaves were stealing the grapes, right? Okay. But why should they steal the grapes before they are ripe? The bird steal the grape before they arrive. Right. And actually, I can tell you, this is a little bit a joke, but uh, I remember, uh, you know, an interview and they were asking me how do I check the chemistry of the grapes, you know, when to decide to harvest. I said, I look at which animal is coming to 
steal the grapes. Fascinating. If they are bird, 17 bricks. If I see a raccoon, it's probably 18, 19 bricks. <laughs> if I see a fox, is over 22 bricks. So if you see the fox, you know that it's time to... Time to go in harvest. And it's true, you know. I mean, I'm sure... Uh, I don't know if you have seen in Monticello that uh, wooden uh, trellis system that yes. we have, right? And one day I remember there was mama raccoon with five raccoon behind all eating grapes, right? Because the post was allowing them to walk on the thing, right? Okay. They were all eating grapes, right? And so they they told me they are eating all the grapes. It's beautiful. No, it's really interesting to me how some people don't have much respect for animals, right? But for me, some animals know much more than people. <laughs> well, they've had to survive a lot, haven't they? So they had to learn and yeah. they pass yeah. that wisdom on down. Well, that excerpt from Gabrielli is just a little slice of what you're going to hear in the entire episode. Now on to episode two, where Luca Peschina is my guest. Luca eventually succeeded Gabrielli at Barbersville in 1990. You will learn how Luca leads the effort to replant their vineyards with a focus on future wine quality. Luca has provided a steady hand at Barbersville for the past 30 years, and he is recognized as one of the leaders in the Virginia wine industry today. Take a listen to this brief excerpt when Luca recounts how he and his own family came together and Luca eventually moved to Virginia. But then when I came to my late 20s, I really uh, felt my heart was in the vineyard as a farmer. I told the company I was working for, uh, you know, I want to be in charge of your fine wine division and your vineyard division. I can take care of the vineyard. I can take care of the winemaking. The answer was no for the reason I don't need to discuss. And then I said, well, then I guess I'll have to leave. And I was on my own. I started working as a consultant. And the second client was uh, Johnny Zoning, the founder of Barbersville Vineyard. And I had a phone uh, conversation and I was asked to attend a meeting in uh, just outside of Verona. And in the meeting, uh, I was told, well, we have an estate in Virginia. We started in 1976. Uh, we need to implement some changes, uh, although we need uh, somebody to help us with it. And uh, so we uh, agreed that I would spend three months here, July, August, September helping for the harvest. I went back in uh, early October. I was asked uh, what were the changes that were needed, and that I told her, well, the main change that has to happen if you want to see your quality increasing is you have to pull all your vineyards out <laughs> and replant everything. And uh, <clears throat> the reason uh, wasn't that the vineyards were not planted properly. The main reason was that uh, the source of the plant material that was put in the ground in the 70s and 80s was of a lesser quality. And I learned of that when I was working in the mid-80s in Napa Valley that a lot of new clones coming from Bordeaux, when it comes to Bordeaux varieties, of course, and also from parts of Italy, were finally coming in through UC Davis and Fresno and being a certified through the FDA quarantine process. And uh, so uh, I learned of that and I put it to to good use in my conversation. I say, you know, 
uh, here we are. I was here in 1990. I look at the vineyard of Merlot that has big cluster, big round berries, and made a, a red wine with very little color, very little uh, structure. When we then subsequently planted Clone 181, for example, small berries, thick skin, it produced wine with such depth of color and intensity and strength. So I think that was the main reason that Virginia took a bit longer to be established. So the wrong plant material Absolutely. had been planted early on in Absolutely. that period. Well, they didn't let you just rip their whole vineyard out. This must have been a process. It took, it took 12 years. Oh, wow. It took 12 years. In episode three, my guest is Michael Shapps, owner and founder of Michael Shapps Wineworks. Michael began his winemaking career in Virginia when he succeeded Gabrielli Rossi at Jefferson Vineyards in 1995. Jefferson Vineyards was known initially as Simeon Vineyards when Gabrielli started the planting for the Woodward family back in 1981. Michael then went on to found his own brand, Michael Shapps, in 2001 and in 2007, Michael Schaap's Wineworks was established. However, there is an intriguing backstory to Michael's career. Michael also owns a domain in Merceau, France, and produces Burgundian wine under his label, Maison Schaap's. That is a fascinating story in and of itself, which you will learn more about in the full interview. But first... Here's a brief excerpt of Michael recounting how a kid from New York, without any connections, decides to go to France. He knocks on the door of the Lycée Viticole de Bonne, the analogy school in Burgundy, and talks his way into an admission in their program. Take a listen. At the wine list. And over the course of a couple of years, just got fascinated with uh, the wine industry and fell in love with Burgundian wines and uh, eventually uh, decided that I wanted, I was young enough and had enough to, to risk and decided I wanted to learn winemaking. Did some research into schools and programs and heard about the Lycée Viticole and Bone and uh, left my job in Boston and dedicated about nine months to studying French and, and learning uh, as much as I could before I went to France and then showed up in, in Burgundy and went to knock on the door of the Lycée Viticole. It doesn't sound like you were afraid of the dark then. <laughs> no, I had nothing, I figured I had nothing to lose. I could always, you know, come back to the U.S. and try my luck out in the West Coast, but I uh, love Burgundy, love the wines and gave it a shot and uh, was able to talk my way into the Lycée. The director, uh, Pierre Charlot, uh, kind of laughed at me because my French was so bad and said, there's no way you can you know, really follow the course in, in French. And I kind of reassured him that I would do what I could. And he finally relented and said, okay, I'll make a deal with you. Um, you can go to the program here. And as long as you can pass the classes, you can stay. But, and he said, but uh, I really don't think you're going to make it, so I'm not even going to charge you tuition. Uh, but in ex instead, in exchange, uh, we'd like you to do conversational English with the students twice a week after school. And for me, that was just an incredible opportunity. And this was in August, and he helped me find an internship uh, in Pouligny Morchet at uh, Chartron and Trebuchet, uh, and that turned into a, uh, almost a two-year stint as a you know first an intern, then as a, a seller, uh, one of seller team members, 
while I was going to school. And so, did they ever charge you tuition? Nope, nope. And I received my there. Well, there it is, right there. My uh, diploma from the Ministry of Agriculture in France. My uh, diploma in analogy and viticulture. So I was able to prove them wrong. And uh, trust me, there's a lot of all-nighters uh, studying. I had a dictaphone. I taped every class and would listen to at night and make sure I was understanding everything. And then, fortunately, I was working as well. I, you know, I had several weeks went through the Vendange uh, before classes started and got exposed and, and met people who helped me and, and it just all came together. It was really magical. I hope you enjoyed these three excerpts. The full interviews are chock full of interesting facts and humorous stories. My intention is to put together a series of interviews that will provide a platform for chronicling how far Virginia wine growing has come in the past 45 years. In upcoming episodes, I will weave a story around all the many other pioneers during the beginning of this modern era in Virginia viticulture up through today, showing why the future is so bright for the Virginia wine industry. Get ready to pique your curiosity, eventually your palate, by tasting some of Virginia's finest at your earliest opportunity. I want to thank you for listening and hit that subscribe button to this podcast. This podcast will be commercial free for your listening enjoyment. And please share any comments you have to Fred at finewineconfidential.com. The music at Fine Wine Confidential Podcast by Jason Shaw at audionautics.com from his copyrighted song Acoustic Shuffle under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License. I hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>